Well, good morning. If you and I have not had a chance to meet yet, my name is Chad, and I get to be one of the pastors here at this church. Another one of those privileges in my life beyond getting to be a pastor is also that I get to regularly teach the Bible. Like, I think that's fantastic. Like, because the Bible, when we go to read it, like, it's not just like some words that happen to be printed in really weird formatted four-column-on-pages thing. It's this actual, like, living exact thing that, like, for whatever reason, God saw fit to preserve it for a couple thousand years and then give to us in the same format. Like, when we step into the Bible, we're stepping into other people's lives, into their world, into something that's way bigger than us. And we actually somehow, through this thing, get to know the God of the universe. Like, that's nuts. But it's one of the greatest things that we have, and I get to teach it? I think that's fantastic. So this morning, we're going to start into the series on James, which we're calling Real Life Faith. Uh, one, if you've been around Eastern Hills, uh, you may recognize that about a year ago we did a series on James. It was all in James 1. We're going to skip outside of today, James chapter 1, and do the rest of it. But beyond that, the goal of this series is to go from, okay, how do I like go from like a belief in Jesus, like maybe I prayed a prayer, maybe I attend a church, maybe uh, I'm kind of like sort of on board, or I think I'm on board, or I'm wondering about being on board with being a Christian. How do we go from this to what I actually do? How do we actually apply the faith that we have? Like how does that actually affect the day-to-day -day rhythms of our lives? That's the goal of this series. Because James is a real letter, from a real person to real people in a real situation. And just like us, they needed wisdom. When my wife Abby and I, when we were dating uh, and engaged, and even the first part of our marriage, we lived about two hours apart. Uh, we'd met at a summer camp, but then uh, she was finishing up school in Central Michigan University, which is kind of in the middle of Michigan, and I was further away. I was working at a nonprofit at the time, and we lived about two hours apart. And like we had Skype, we had text, we could call, but one of the ways that we wanted to like keep the energy in the relationship and like fun ways to be romantic uh, was we wrote letters to each other, uh, which first of all, it took me forever and a half to actually get used to expressing my feelings with a pencil. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've tried that lately, it's kind of weird. Uh, but We'd write these letters back and forth, and like we'd like text like, hey, I sent you a letter today. Okay. And then you'd actually have to wait three days for the U.S. Postal Service to deliver that letter. But anytime I would get one, uh, like she'd text me, and I'd, I'd do the math. It's like, oh, okay, it's been about three days. I'd go to the mailbox, open that thing up, and sure enough, there'd be a thick envelope with like multiple pages in it. And so I would like get my coffee. I'd set it down. I'd get in a nice little chair, find some space by myself. Uh, I would open this thing up. And I would read it, like it was front and back, multiple pages every time, and I thought it was fantastic. I'd read it over and over, like, okay, I wonder how she was feeling with that. Oh, I'm really getting to know this woman that I think I'm gonna marry, but like, wow, she's interesting. Uh, and I would get to like just read this over and over and over and over. We actually, because uh, we just moved, we discovered we still have these. Uh, they're in a box labeled mementos, uh, but we still have this whole massive box of letters that we wrote to each other over the course of years. But imagine briefly, if I went to the mailbox and I saw, oh, I got a big envelope from Abby. Awesome. I've got this thing. I get my coffee. I get my chair. I sit on in and I'm like, all right, open it up. Arbitrarily picked one sentence in the middle and was like, hmm, I fully understand Abby. 
this one sentence, this changed me? As a matter of fact, there's a reference in here to Mount Pleasant. Man, I love the fact that she lives near a place where there's a hill where people are just happy. No. First of all, Mount Pleasant's a city in Michigan. There's nothing uniquely happy, joyful, or depressing about it. It's just a city. But that's what we tend to do with the Bible. Like, we're going to go through James. It's a letter. Um, we, but sometimes we get in this odd habit of like, okay, I'm going to go pick a random sentence to read, and maybe I'll set this away for a while. Maybe I'll come back to it the next day. Uh, which, that's not to say that different moments in Scripture can't affect us in massive ways. It's divinely inspired. It can kind of do that. But never forget the fact that we're actually reading a letter from a real guy to real people with a real situation. They had issues. They had good things, bad things. They had names. And so what we need to do as we kick off a series on James is learn about these people. Uh, it was kind of funny. I was sitting in Rob's office as we were talking about this series, and then his eyes got a little sparkle, and I was like, this is going to be fun. He's like, I need you to do something. I was like, okay. New boss, only been here for like a month and a half. He got an eye sparkle, and he's like, I need you to do something. It's like, okay, this could be good or bad. I need you to preach on just James 1.1 and give us all the context you got. That I can do. Uh, we're actually going to leave most of that on the cutting room floor because we're not going to be here for four hours. But we are going to unpack this verse. So James 1, verse 1, goes like this. James. It's actually as good a place as I need to stop. Who is this James? Right? So this is an early church uh, kind of picture of who they, what they thought James kind of looked like. Uh, this is clearly from the Eastern Orthodox Church, if you're familiar with the sashes. But, uh, so this is James. But which one? So in the New Testament, there are four guys named James. Uh, this is not the disciple of Jesus. Uh, he got killed by Herod Agrippa pretty early on. Uh, it was dead before this letter was written. But this is James, the brother of Jesus. Now, he did not believe in Jesus. He did not think that Jesus was who he says he was. Uh, there's different points in Mark where Jesus is trying to like, do some teachings, do some healings, and he comes along and he's like, can you not? But then there's one point in John chapter 7 where Jesus is like just deciding on his travel plans, and James, as well as his other brothers, are like, if you were a real Messiah, you would do X, Y, and Z. You're not. For James, he did not believe until the resurrection. Because after Jesus rose from the dead, after being brutally tortured and murdered in public, unequivocally dead, because that's what the Romans were good at, he resurrected and then appeared to James. At that point, James was like, yep, you're probably God. If you can do that, I'm on board. From there, he becomes a leader in the early church. Uh, the church at Jerusalem is actually the place that he leads. That's like the OG original church. Beyond that, he's actually like writing letters as we're going to read, and he's also making decisions as to how the church is supposed to move forward. He goes from, I don't believe at all, to I'm leading the movement. On top of that, he goes to his death because he will not give up this belief uh, early church tradition is that he got thrown off the Temple Mount, somehow survived that, and then they beat him to death with a stick. I don't know what it would take for you to believe that your brother is God, but I've got a brother. 
His name is Jeremy. He's older than me. He's smarter than me. Uh, he's more athletic than I am. Like, he's, he seems like a pretty good guy. He's got that man of mystery thing where he's just constantly intriguing. Uh, but at no point am I confused whether or not he's God. It would take a whole heck of a lot for me to lead the cult of Jeremy that we're all going to follow him, and I am certainly not going to die thinking that my brother is the Lord. But James did. Brings up the interesting question. I'm just going to toss this out there. What would it take for you to believe that Jesus is God? First of all, maybe you're kind of on the fence about Christianity. You're checking it out. First of all, welcome. We kind of do this every week. You're more than welcome to come every single week. Let's get coffee. But maybe you're on the fence about it. What would it actually take for you to believe that Jesus is who he said he was? What would it actually take you to truly believe that this Jesus we sing to, we worship, we sing things like Christ be magnified, what would it take for you to actually cross that line into, I'm on board? But maybe you are a Christian already, and let's not let ourselves off the hook. Um, there's a famous quote that I cannot for the life of me remember who said it, but just know this is not mine. Uh, we tend to hire Jesus as our Savior, but fire him as our King. As in, we get really on board with the get out of hell free card or the fact that, like, there's grace, there's mercy, everything is wonderful, everything is great. Like, we actually have a place, we have a Christian family to belong to. Like, he paid for my issues. Awesome. But then when it comes to actually bending our way to the way of Jesus, we have a problem. If Jesus is who he said he is, if Jesus is God and all that we mean when we say the word God, if he is our only hope in life and in death... That means we actually have to bend ourselves to the way of Jesus. But James decided that he was going to go that route. But notice how he introduces himself. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This got me, by the way, even again this week is reading it like, okay, he introduces himself as a servant of Jesus. Servant. Uh, he's Jesus' brother. Like, that's like the biggest claim to fame you could possibly have. Why would you not lead with that? He's actually like the leader of the early church at Jerusalem. Like, he's one of the most important guys in the whole early Christian movement. Why wouldn't you lead with that? It's like this letter is going to be filled with like, hey, going from like, I believe in Jesus to what I actually do. Like, there's going to be a lot of things that James is like, this is what you should do. Why not get a leg up on that and be like, I'm in charge, do it. But he doesn't. Also, it's not just him. Uh, look at some other introductions to letters that we have. Jude, uh, another one of Jesus' younger brothers, a servant of Jesus Christ. Simon Peter, servant an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul, servant of God in Jesus Christ. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. Something for all of these guys, their core identity is not their position. Their core identity is I serve Jesus. Like, there's something to that. 
Well, first of all, let's start with the leadership angle on this. I'm a pastor. Um, James, early church pastor. This means that I can't lead with my title and demand you follow me. Right? Like, first of all, if I ever go, I'm a pastor, you have to do what I say, something horrible is about to happen, stop listening. But right, as leaders in the church, whether it's like leaders of like volunteer teams, leaders of the church, teachers, preachers, whatever the heck you want to call us, pastors, like we don't get to lead with our title and just demand people have to follow. We actually have to say, hey, here's where we're going, here's, here's why, here's the how, and leave you the option. But it also is an all-of-us kind of thing. We don't get to name drop for influence to get our way. James could have, but he didn't. Right? When we're trying to make decisions like uh, around the place here, uh, we don't just get to go, <laughs> Rob Ryerson and I are best friends. You have to do what I want. First of all, if you're best friends with Rob Ryerson, lucky you. Secondly, we actually have to like, go through the work of giving the why, like James is about to in this whole letter. We actually have to go through the work of letting the argument stand for itself, not just going, this is the way we've always done things. We've been around a long time. We should, we've always done it this way. We should continue doing it this way because I like it. We don't get to do that. But like, even think about like, how you would choose to introduce yourself this is a wild kind of introduction that all these guys chose, that they're like servants of Jesus. But like when you go for a job interview and your potential future boss is like, so tell me a little bit about yourself. There's a lot of ways you could answer that question. Or maybe you go to a small group and, you're, and they're like, hey man, tell me your story. Like what's your story? What are you about? What have you been through? There's a ton of ways you could answer that question. So there's a ton of ways you could tell your story, right? You could tell it chronologically, boring, um, but it works. It's a good way to organize things, right? This happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Okay. Uh, you could tell just the wins only. Uh, first of all, that tends to not go well because uh, just culturally we think you're arrogant if you only tell us about the awesome things about yourself. Um, but you could do that. Uh, as a side note, by the way, if you want to know who your friends actually are, Tell them a win that happened in your life this week and see what they do. If someone's willing to celebrate that with you and not change the topic, they're probably your friend. But when we tell our story, is it just wins only because we don't want to be vulnerable? On the opposite side of that, do we only tell the trauma? We only tell the bad things? Uh, right? Because I don't know if you've ever been in a small group like this. Um, sh certainly never here. Clearly only a me thing. Uh, but like if a bunch of people are telling their stories, all of a sudden it starts getting really competitive where it's like, hey, I have a better win. Or it's like, my trauma was so much worse than yours. Regardless of whether it was, but we all of a sudden get competitive and it's like, who's going to have the most wild story in the room, right? First of all, just be honest and tell your story for what it is. But secondly, like if we only tell the negative and we're a Christian, that doesn't tell the full story of what God's done for us either. This happened, but God. This is still happening, and God is working with me. However you tell that story. There's other ways to tell your story, too. Maybe by theme, right? Like if you ask me, all right, Chad, tell me your story, like maybe with the theme of what is home to you. Uh, there's going to be some wins and some losses there, um, 
But I mean, at this point, like home is wherever Abby is, like that's it for me. But there's a lot of ways to tell your story. For all these guys, that story began with I serve Jesus. From I serve Jesus, it keeps going to, again, we're just going to tackle this one word at a time. It's going to be fine. But this is a letter. Like James actually wrote this to some real people. Uh, and this is not like texting today. This is not like sending an email. This is nothing like the kind of communication that we have today. First of all, the letter of James cost over $1,000 to send one time without making a copy. You had better believe every single word is in there on purpose because every single word costs more money and they were not wealthy people. But beyond that, it's not like James just sat down in his study, wrote a letter, had some fun and mailed it. First of all, public mail didn't exist at the time. Uh, military communication and government mail did, but not for private citizens. But what James would have to do is he would go and hire a professional scribe, someone who was better with language than he was, uh, but also someone that he trusted and had small handwriting, because again, each piece of paper that you write on costs more money. And so he would go and hire this person, and then they'd come in, and he would talk with them, like, okay, here's what I'm thinking, here's what I want to communicate, here's what I'm trying to say, here's, what, uh, here's the idea, here's the references I want to make, and then that scribe would go away, come, make a draft, come back to James and say, okay, does this look right to you? And James would give edits, revisions, changes, like, ooh, that reference needs to be over here. Let's move this around, do that. They would do this process repeatedly. It would take multiple weeks until it got to the point where James was like, okay, I like this. This is what I intend to say. This is how I want it said. Perfect. Job's not done, though. Then you have to find a way to get that letter to the people you're trying to send it to. Essentially, James would have had to find a friend who was going to the area and then coached them on how to present this letter because most people in the ancient world could not read. So when you write a letter, you got to find someone who can read. Not very hard, but also there's not that many people that can read. But then he would train this person who's presenting the letter. Hey, here's how you present this. Here's how you speak this. Here's where you get really amped. Like when I'm like, faith without works is dead, I want you to yell the word dead, right? I want you to do that. But then also when we're like talking about taming the tongue because some people couldn't keep a lid on their lips for some reason, uh, like just kind of like slide that one in there uh, as we're going. But then like he'd teach this person how to perform the letter kind of like a sermon. That's why they read kind of like sermons sometimes. Um, but then he would give them additional information to be be able to teach on that letter because again not all the information fit on the page so he gave them additional like hey uh, when they ask about this uh, this is what I was meaning behind that when they ask about this this is what I'm meaning behind that he gave them also teaching material just to go off of as well and then eventually this person actually has to take the letter and the teaching material and go to the place where this letter was sent to, presented to all the varieties of churches and church gatherings and apartment buildings and complexes and meals where people were having it and then teach on it. That's how you write a letter. Very different from how we do it now, but it also speaks to the intentionality of this thing that we call the book of James. But who is this wonderful letter written to? The 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Uh, that word scattered is hiding the word diaspora. 
In this, uh, we're not going to go super far and deep on this, uh, but essentially, the most likely audience is Jewish Christian day laborers in Syria uh, from different things going on. So behold a map, because you said it was helpful. Uh, James is down here in Jerusalem, and Syria is an enormous region over this way. Uh, that's why there's not a lot of personal greetings in the book of James, because it's meant for multiple churches in multiple places. And so unlike something like, say, Romans, this does not have a bunch of personal greetings, because it's meant for a lot of different places, not just one. But he's writing to the general area of Syria. And they're almost assuredly Christian Jews. And the life of a Christian Jew, especially at this point, was terrible. First of all, the outside world thought they were nuts. Uh, so the Roman culture had three reasons why they thought Jews were weird. First of all, they didn't eat bacon. Because bacon's delicious, what is wrong with you? But Jews kept the kosher food laws. Uh, they also thought Jews and Christians were atheists uh, because Jews and Christians have this weird shtick about only worshiping one God and everyone else in the world is polytheistic. They just kind of like, oh, we heard about a new God, we'll add them to the list, let's worship that too. It's kind of like paying taxes. It actually is almost identical to paying taxes because you're not patriotic if you don't worship all the Roman gods and also when they're the ones with the legionaries, it becomes a problem. The third thing that Roman people held against Jews was Sabbath. Because what kind of lazy bum wouldn't work all seven days of the week until their fingers were ground to the bone? The Romans tried to get Jews to work on the Sabbath, by the way. It did not work. There was a lot of violence, a lot of dead bodies, so much so to the point that they were like, uh, we'll just write in a law that says everyone has to work all the time except for Jews because we tried to make them work. Doesn't happen. But they thought they were lazy. So not only does the outside culture think that these, this audience of James is bizarre <laughs> at best, there's also major issues within the church. Did you know that the number one issue in the New Testament outside of the identity of Jesus and his resurrection is how do Jews and Gentiles get along in the same church gathering? Because it didn't work. At least not right away. Uh, if you don't know what a Gentile is, anybody who's not Jewish, likely most of us. But how do Jews and Gentiles cross this like ethnic barrier and actually figure out how on earth they get along? Because they didn't. As a matter of fact, both groups thought the other was going to hell pretty often. But how does this actually work? James, the author of this letter, is actually part of the solution to that. In Acts 15, they have a council. He gives like a ruling and they try to make that happen. But there's still issues going on. So not only is the outside world kind of hostile, not only is the general church environment kind of hostile to this audience of this letter, but also there's a lot of issues going on in the letter. Right? There's some favoritism. There's some rich, wealthy landowners that are taking advantage of poor day laborers. Uh, that's not cool. Uh, as it turns out, there is a bunch of people in this church that can't really keep their mouth shut when they're supposed to, and they say a lot of horrible things to each other. Shocker. We would never be like that, but shocker that that was going on. And, like, how do you actually go from, like, we follow the way of Jesus? How do we go from that to actually doing it? That was their question, too. And through this letter, you just see a constant need for wisdom. Like, that practical know-how to actually get this done. So what 
grounds this. Right? This letter of James that is into such a complicated world, like what actually grounds this thing? Heck, as we go to read the letter, what is actually going to ground us as we go through this letter as a church? Beyond that, even like day to day, what is going to ground us as people in this world? And I still think there's something to that identification of I serve Jesus. Or maybe how we'd more likely put it, I follow Jesus. Because first of all, we need something. We need something we can actually count on uh, because, let's face it, your bank account is going to fluctuate. Your employment is going to change over time. As a matter of fact, if you just do like an internal inventory about the things you have believed to be true about the world or about God, over the span of your life, there's probably been a few edits that have been made. That's not consistent either. We need something that we can bank on. The way of Jesus is that thing. Right? when we're looking for meaning or something that actually has significance to it that we can actually like strive toward. Following Jesus is the highest possible good. It's the only thing that works over time. It's worked for thousands of years. It will continue to work thousands of years from now. It's way more reliable than anything else we have possibly come up with. But that simple statement, even when it's confusing and we don't quite get it, can ground us. That simple statement of, I follow Jesus. When things are going well, I follow Jesus. When things are not going well, I follow Jesus. When it was all the energy you could possibly do to get your rambunctious kids to the parking lot, and then they cross the line again, and you spanked one of them, and then you got in here, but we don't spank because we're in New York. Everybody practices gentle parenting, right? But then you made it into the door, and you like got them handed off to some child worker that you might not even know, but then you got in this room just to white-knuckle it for a few more seconds of relief from your own family. I follow Jesus. When you are in that pit of despair, it's a low valley you don't think you're going to make it out of. I follow Jesus. When you have to wait longer than you think reasonable, longer than you think you would have ever had to, when you have to wait on something from God longer than you have ever dreamed you could possibly have the patience for, I follow Jesus. When it makes absolutely no sense, I follow Jesus. When you take a day to shut your phone off and just be present and rest, I follow Jesus. When you pick up the phone and call that family member you don't want to, is there something going on that you've been avoiding? I follow Jesus. My honest prayer for each and every one of you, and for myself, anybody watching online, is that when that question hangs over our heads of, are you going to follow the way of Jesus? My honest prayer for you has been this, that you would be able to stand on both of your feet and say, yes, I will. 
Let's pray. God, thank you for another day. Thank you that you are one thing that we can count on. Thank you that when we gotta wait, you're there. Thank you that when we are depressed, you are there. Thank you that in our joys, you are there. Thank you that we have a name above all names that we can praise and that we can glorify and that we can honor. Thank you that there is a way to do life that is more meaningful and significant than anything we could come up with. God, give us the strength to stand on both of our feet and choose to follow you. For us to actually go from, okay, I believe this, I want this, I need this, help us to go from that to I actually live this. God, give us the strength we need for today. Give us the smart we need for today. Give us the wisdom we need for today. And above it all, God, whether it's today, tomorrow, this week, whenever that question hangs over our heads of, are we gonna follow Jesus? Help us respond, yes, I will. God, we love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in the powerful and worthy name of Jesus. Amen.